Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are so blessed that we have this opportunity to come together with your people once again. After a week of work, after the things that we've been through this week, we get to come next to each other and to encourage one another, to sing together to you, to praise and to pray for one another, and to sit under your word. And Father, I ask that this morning you would work powerfully through your word in our lives. I know you have a word for us. I know you have something that you want to confront us with, something that you want to encourage us with. And I do pray that you would meet every single person here. Not the things that I say, but I know that your spirit can take your word and bring it to the hearts of people in such a way that they would be encouraged, that they would be built up that they would be confronted with their sin and that your spirit would work in such a way that they would confess and believe. And I do pray also for the hearts of those who are here who are still not saved, that perhaps some of the things that we'll talk about this morning would resonate in their hearts by your spirit and someone would come to life because your spirit is at work and your word is powerful. I ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This morning I want to bring you a message entitled, Work That Pleases God. According to some estimates, an average American will spend over 13 years of his life at work. 13 years. Now besides the hours that you spend at work every week, many of us work overtime. Some people work excessive overtime because they want to get ahead in life, make more money. And in some cases, in some seasons in life, that might be a right thing to do. But in some, it also might be sinful if you're neglecting your other responsibilities. Now, in other cases, it might not be the overtime that you take, but you come home and you have a phone call that you need to take, you have an email that you need to write, You have a presentation that you need to prepare for the next day. Now, if you are a business owner, you never clock out. You're always on the job. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you don't clock out after eight hours. You work all the time. Now, work is not only that which you do to get paid. There are many ways in which you work and you don't get paid for them. For example, if you're a student, You do a lot of work. You don't get paid, you've paid to go to school. If you are, you know, a child who goes to grade school, if you're being homeschooled, you got a lot of work that you need to do. You don't get paid for that. You got chores that are assigned to you at home, you gotta do them, but you don't get paid for them. Now, you see, you will spend most of your life working in one way or another. And the question for us this morning is this, How does, what does the Bible say about work? More specifically, how am I supposed to work as a Christian? Now before we answer this question from the text that is before us this morning, I want to just give a few observations about work. First of all, work is not the result of the fall. I think it's safe to say that many Christians have a wrong view of work. 
We live in the world or we live in a country where many people think that I got to get a job right now that I can make as much money as I can, as fast as I can, so that I can retire and work no more. So I can just sit back and relax. As if work is something that you need to avoid. Think about it. When God created Adam and Eve, when God placed Adam in the garden before the fall in Genesis 2.15, where we read the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Adam had to work before the fall. His job was to take care of the garden. Now, if you fast forward to the future when you're going to be in eternity with God, it's not like you're going to be sitting on the cloud your entire eternity do nothing. No. We read in Revelation chapter 22, verse 3, says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. You are going to work in heaven. Now, there was work before the fall. There was work after complete redemption. And in the middle, you also have to work. Now, true, the second observation that we can make about work is the work was affected by the fall. When Adam sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, God is talking to him. In Genesis 3, 17, the Lord says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat all of the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The environment which used to cooperate with Adam would do so no longer. He said, by the sweat of your face, you will earn your living. Much toil and exertion will be required for you to just provide your daily sustenance. Everything in this world is affected by sin, including your work. However, a third observation we can make about work is that work is redeemed in the gospel. When Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a church that was made up of average folks, most of them were lower class working folks, and writing to them in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, God, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, and whatever you do includes work, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Listen, you will spend most of your life working. This is what you will be consumed with most of your time, doing something. And Paul says, and we'll see in this passage here, that he says you ought to do it in such a way that God would be glorified and God would be pleased. So, question for us. How can I glorify and please God through my work? I'm glad you asked this because our passage answers this text, answers this question. In our passage here, this text does not only deal with how you work at work eight hours, but anything and everything that you do in this life is affected by this. This has ramifications for children, for students, for young adults, for parents, for people who are retired and have a fortune. This text affects everyone. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you are changing a diaper or whether you're managing someone's fortune. This text has something to say to you. Now, if you bring yourself back to the study of 1 Thessalonians, because we've been, we've been here for some time, as you come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we find ourselves in an application part of the book. 
An application, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You see, Paul is not just happy with you to have intellectual knowledge. He says, we've taught you a lot, we've commended you a lot of things, but now we want you to walk in those things. Your doctrine, your knowledge must make itself way, must make its way into your walk. That's why in the first eight verses of this chapter, Paul dealt with your personal holiness. That you're not only supposed to believe that you ought to be holy, but you are, you are to walk in holiness. And so in the first eight verses, he dealt with that, specifically focusing on sexual purity. He reminds them that because you know God, you are to no longer walk in the way of the Gentiles. You are to be different from the people who are around you. Now, as we come to verses 9 through 12, which are our verses for this morning, I want to unpack these verses under two simple headings. First, we will see an exhortation to brotherly love. And second, we will see an expression of brotherly love. First, there's this general thing, hey, this is what you ought to do. And then he gets more specific in verses 11 and 12. Exhortation to brotherly love, and then specific expression of brotherly love. Join me as I begin reading in verse one, and we'll read first 12 verses. Paul writes, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, That as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. And attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. We begin with an exhortation to brotherly love. Verse 9, Paul says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, with this now, Paul transitions to a new section. If in first eight verses he dealt with your personal holiness and your personal walk, now he moves to corporate. I want you to notice that the instructions that we just read in first 12 verses, 
This was not new information to them. At least four times in this text, Paul says that, listen, I told you this before. I told you this. If you look at verse 1, he said, as you received from us instruction. In verse 2, he says, for you know what commandments we gave you. In verse 6, he says, just as we also told you before. Again, in verse 11, just as we commanded you. When Paul was there in Thessalonica, he continually taught them these things. And now that he's away, he says, let me remind you of something that you already know. Now, how many times does God have to say something for it to be true? Once. But he repeats it again and again and again, just like we repeat things to our children again and again and again. And so he does this in this passage. He reminds us of the things that we already know. God is so gracious with us that again and again and again, he says, hey, God, I told you this before. Do this. Go this way. Now, just a few words about this phrase here as to the love of the brethren. If you have ESV, they translate it literally and they say, as for the brotherly love. Now, you know this word. This is where we get the word Philadelphia. Phileo, to love, Adolfa's brother. The city of brotherly love. That's what this is about. He says, now, as for the love of the brethren. Now, initially, this word referred to love among blood relatives. But as you read through the New Testament, it is used again and again and again. And it refers to the affection and the love that believers have for one another. We can say that this is the fulfillment of the second greatest commandment. Right? First thing first, you ought to love God. But if you love God, that love will make itself into your personal life as you interact with other people. And he says you are going to love people. Now, Christian faith is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith. It is not just something that, hey, it's between me and Jesus, and everybody else, forget it. You see, you cannot be a Christian and live on the island. In fact, there are a lot of commands in Scripture that you cannot obey on your own. If you're all by yourself, if you're not in the community, you cannot obey this. In fact, our passage here, you cannot obey this if you live on the island by yourself. Now this phrase, one another, if you look again at verse 9, he says that you are taught by God to love one another. One another is an important phrase in the New Testament. It appears again and again. And even in our passage here, even in our book here, 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses it multiple times. For example, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 12, Paul prayed this for Thessalonians. In chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. He prayed that in chapter 3, verse 12. Now you get to chapter 4, and he commands you to love one another. Now look at chapter 4, verse 19. He says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Verse 11 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, encourage one another. And build up one another just as you also are doing. In verse 13, live in peace with one another. In verse 15 of chapter 5, so that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. You see, as believers, we have responsibility towards others in the body. If you are never with anyone, if you live by yourself, how are you going to comfort one another? How are you going to encourage one another? 
How are you going to love one another? You see, you cannot be an island all by yourself. That's why when God saves you, he puts you in a community of believers where you need other people and other people need you. Now, as you read verse 9, it is amazing how Paul exhorts them to love one another. He could have said, brothers, love one another. Now, he does that elsewhere. But look how he says in verse 9. Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Question. Paul, if we have no need for anyone to write to us, why are you writing to us? I mean, he just wrote this. It's not like he wrote this and then he's like, oh, by the way, you don't need. Have you ever told your kids something like, I mean, I don't need to tell you that you need to clean your room. Now, there are no imperatives in that statement. But what are you saying? Go clean your room. That's what you're saying. Now, when Paul says, I know that I don't have to write to you, but I am going to write to you. Why? Because that's what I want you to do. He's exhorting them, and this is just a way of saying, guys, this is what I want you to do. This is I know you are doing this already. I know you are excelling this. So even though there is no command here, he says, guys, this is what I want you to be about. I know that I don't need to write to you because you're doing this, but I am going to write to you because this is where you need to grow. This is where you need to improve. Now, he says there are two reasons why I don't need to write to you. First one, he says, for you yourself are taught by God. Now, if you're a believer, and Paul is writing this to church, to the church, he's writing to brethren, to those who are saved, to those who are redeemed. As believers, you have the Spirit of God on the inside of you. The Spirit of God illumines the truth of God to your mind, and he teaches you. God dwells with you, and, God, and there, is an expectation, there is an expectation that if you are a believer, you have a certain expectation that if you are a believer, you're going to act in a certain way. Why? Because God dwells in you. Now, John made a similar statement in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. He says, as for you, believers, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, is Paul and is John saying that just because you are a believer, now you don't need anyone to come alongside of you and teach you because you have God on the inside of you, and God is going to teach you? Of course they're not saying that. Why would they be writing letters? Why would they be instructing believers? No, you need other people to come alongside of you and instruct you. God gives gifted men to the church so that they would communicate the truth to you and teach you. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. God gives gifted men to the church to instruct other believers. But no matter how gifted you are and how eloquent and clearly you, eloquently and clearly you teach the word, unless the Spirit of God opens your heart to accept and receive the word, nothing will happen. He says, you have the Spirit of God who dwells on the inside of you. And yes, God uses other people in your life to teach the truth, but it is the Spirit of God on the inside of you who compels you and who transforms you to walk in a certain way. 
But according to this verse, according to verse 9, who is teaching us to love one another? Look at the verse. You yourself are taught by God to love one another. You know, this means that God in his sovereignty, God in his providence, ordains your life in such a way that you would learn this lesson. See, it's easy to love your wife when your marriage is blossoming. But it's not so easy when she sins against you. It is easy to love your child when they're obedient. But it's not so easy when they disappoint you. It's easy to love your coworkers when they gather around you and support you. But it's not so easy when they stab you in the back. It is easy to love God when he gives you everything you want. But it's not so easy when it feels like he's silent, that he's not there. And you see, this verse says here that God is the one who's going to teach you this lesson. And in order to teach you this lesson, God will put you in circumstances. God will arrange your life in such a way that you are going to have to learn this. You see, it is not in the easy times of life when you learn your greatest lessons. In fact, it is when you experience the most pain, when you have no one else in your life to rely on but God. This is where you're actually going to grow. Not when everything is rosy, not when everything is beautiful. And this verse says, listen, God is orchestrating your life. God is sovereign in your life. If you are a believer, nothing can happen to you or with you that did not go through God. God ordains all things. And in this case, he's saying that God is the one who is teaching you to love others. Now, does that mean that if you are taught by God, you are never going to fail? Of course it doesn't mean that. We live in the flesh. We all constantly sin. And it is when we fail. That is when we are going to learn. How are you going to learn that God loves you if you say, well, you know, I always obey. I always do what is right. But when you fail, when you are miserable, and God still takes you in, and God still loves you, and God, that's when you know God's love. If you're a wife or if you're a husband, how are you going to know that your spouse loves you? When everything is beautiful, when everything is nice, no, it is when you sin against them and they still continue to love you. That's when you're going to know that they love you. And so that's what he's saying. In your trials, in your pain, in your sufferings, God will put you through a grind so that you will learn how to love one another. We all need to learn how to love. And so people will sin against us. And that is God's way of teaching us to love one another. And Paul says here that, yes, if you are taught by God, you will exhibit that in your walk. And so I don't have to write to you, first of all, because God dwells in you. And God teaches you. But second, lesson, second thing he says, I don't have to write to you this because you already practice this. In verse 10 he says, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. This church was a model church in this. They proclaimed the gospel. And the same, same phrase is used in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that you have no need to, so that we have no need to say anything. These guys were faithful in proclaiming the gospel all throughout the regions. And when the churches were established, they demonstrated their love for 
the believers. Now, if they were taught by God, and if they were doing this already, why does Paul say, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more? Why? Because no matter how loving you are, you still have room to grow. No matter how loving these guys were, they had room to improve. Paul does not tell them, guys, you have arrived. No. He says, I want you to excel still more. Now, aren't you glad that God does not reveal to you all of your sin at the same time? I mean, you can think back through a Christian life, and hopefully as you grow, as you mature, you find areas in your life where you're like, oh, man, I'm doing this, and this is wrong, and I've been doing that for a long time. I mean, what if on the first day when you got saved, God would just open your eyes to everything that you know? I mean, you'd go insane. But God is so kind. He's maturing you. He's growing you. He's revealing. He's so patient with you. He brings circumstances in your life that reveal your weak spots, that reveal the things that maybe you trust or the sins that you perhaps hold on to that you're not even aware of. And so God arranges circumstances of your life to expose those so that when they do come to life, you would run back to God and deal with your sin. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, yes, you are doing well. Yes, it's great that you love one another, but you got room to improve. You got areas where you need to grow. You're doing well, but you are not yet perfect. And neither are we. Now we can take this passage as an encouragement for ourselves because he is encouraging the church in this way. He says, guys, you are doing well. Listen, if you love people, if you serve people, if you sacrifice for people, listen, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, because, I mean, even in our church, in our circumstances here, we have faithful people, people who dedicate themselves, who dedicate their time, who give their resources, and praise the Lord for that. But we ought not to be content with where we are, just like these people ought not to be content. We are to look for avenues, look for ways where we could excel still more, because we have not yet arrived. So this first general exhortation that he gives, guys, Exercise brotherly love. Love one another in the family of Christ. Now, having given this general exhortation to brotherly love, he moves to specific expression of brotherly love in verses 11 and 12. Now, I want you to notice that verse 11 and 12, they don't begin a new section. It's not even a new sentence. It's not even a new thought. In verse 11, it begins with and. He continues, says, I want you to excel still more and. Now he said, I want you to show love to the brothers. The question is, how are you going to show love to the brothers? How are you going to demonstrate this brotherly love? Now we know that biblical love is expressed in works, right? See, you can talk the talk. You can say all kinds of things. But unless your works prove that what you're saying is actually true, it's all worthless, right? Don't talk the talk. You read First John about that. Your love is demonstrated by your works. It is demonstrated by what you do. And so if I command you, listen, love your brothers. Love believers in the body of Christ. Love one another. And you say, how do you do that? We can ask a different question. How shall I work? If my works demonstrate my love, the question I should ask myself is, how shall I work? And now when you ask that question, that brings it down. Not only, how do I work at work? 
how, do I, how am I supposed to work at work? Because that does affect how you work at work. How am I supposed to work at home? How am I supposed to work at school? How am I supposed to work at church? And all of a sudden, this brotherly love affects every single part of your life. From the moment you wake up to the time that you go to sleep, it affects you. And so, as we look at verses, verse 11 and verse 12, verse 11 more specifically, I want to give you three simple exhortations which will help you with that. You see, the aim of everything that you do, we can say has, you have two aims. Number one, you want to please God. You want to please God. Paul said, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. And second thing, you want to benefit people around you. Two greatest commandments. You love God and you love the people. Now, if you do these three things that I'm going to talk about for the rest of our time, you are going to please God and you are going to be benefit for the people that are around you. In fact, if you do this, you will be successful at everything that you do. You will be successful at your work. You will be one of the best employees, I can guarantee you that. You will be successful in your church ministry. You're going to be one of the most valuable people in the church. If you live in this manner, there are going to be two results that we'll see in verse 12. But first, three exhortations. Number one, if you want to express your love towards brothers, if you want to love other people, number one, stay humble. Stay humble. Look at verse 11. Paul begins. And make it your ambition. Stop right there. Ambition. Ambition talks about your aspiration. Talks about strong desires. If you have ESV, it says, and to aspire. You know of ambitious people? Ambitious people have great goals in life. You know, they reach for the sky. They have these plans, these massive plans. They're so ambitious because they want to accomplish so much. Does God want you to be ambitious? Well, the verse says, and make it your ambition. Make it your ambition. But what is your ambition? Look at the rest of the verse. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Paul, it's not very ambitious. Make it your ambition. It's like almost your bill. It's almost like an oxymoron. I want you to have this great goal in life. And your great goal in life to lead a quiet life. You know, you read about ambitious people. You probably met some. They want to accomplish much. They want to be on the top of the world. They want everyone to know everything about them. They have thousands of people following them on Instagram. They want the world to know everything about them from the coffee that they drink to the pill that they sleep at night. Because they think that they're so, they have this ambition to be something great. But live a quiet life? I mean, ambition and quiet life don't even go in one sentence. But apparently in Paul's mind, they do. Now, this word is interesting. He says, I want you to li live a quiet life. It's used a number of times in the New Testament. For example, in Luke chapter 14, verse 4, Acts 11, 18, and 21, 14, it refers to being silent. Don't talk. Be quiet. In Luke 23, 56, the reference is to resting on a Sabbath day. A quiet life, a silent life, and this restful life. A similar concept is 
addressed in 1 Timothy, when Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, first of all, then, I urge you to, uh, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that they, that, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And I try to put these two concepts together. I think what Paul was saying is simply this. Listen, don't make much of yourself and don't draw attention to yourself. Don't try to live this extravagant and flamboyant life. No matter how successful you get, no matter how much money you have, no matter how good you are at what you do, listen, stay humble. Now I'm thinking about this. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, you've met, you've met people probably like that, or you've heard of people, that as soon as they have a little bit of success, they tasted a little bit of, you know, they, they made a lot of money or somewhat a lot of money, depends who you compare it to, and all of a sudden, they, they feel like they're on top of the world. They are, you know, this guy whose opinions are more important than his own, than everybody else's. His, his preferences are more valuable than your own, and he makes sure that everybody feels like they're just a little bit beneath him. He's just like somewhere there at the top. And Paul says, hey, make it your ambition not to just be there at the top so that everyone is shooting for you and everyone's looking at you. No, live a quiet life. Now, is Paul saying, don't be successful? Of course he's not saying that. Listen, you, have to, you want to be successful. No matter what you are, no matter what your profession is, if you're a plumber, be the best plumber. If you're a doctor, be the best doctor. If you're a lawyer, be the best lawyer. If you're a musician, strive to be the best. If you're a preacher, strive to be the best. You always are striving, striving to be the best because God has given you. And with everything that you do, you're serving God. And if you're serving God, why, would you gonna give, why are you going to give God something that is, you know, half-hearted? No. You want to do your best. You always want to offer to God what you can do. Your best. And it is your best at work, it is your best at home, it is the best at church, it is your best every single time. But no matter how good you are, no matter how successful you are, it's not about you. It's not about me. Every success in your life is God's grace. And if everything is God's grace in your life, why are you going to boast? Why are you going to draw attention to yourself? Why are you going to make something of yourself? Because it is, the, it is God who gives and it is God who takes away. It's not about you. It's about him. And first thing when we're saying, like, if you're going to serve people, now think about it. This is in the context of loving people. This is in the context of demonstrating that love, showing that love to one another. Now, if you have pride, if it's all about you, if you want to live this lifestyle when everyone just, it's, the world revolves around you, how are you going to love somebody? How are you going to help somebody? How are you going to minister to somebody? But if you realize that you're nothing and all that you are is a matter of God's grace, then you realize that you can love people no matter how successful you are. Now, how do you stay humble? But to stay humble, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are. Now, if you begin to think that you are something, then you will start to be proud. You will start to excel. Somebody, I just heard recently someone say, listen, don't let compliments get to your head and, let, and don't let criticism get to your heart. 
We can say it a different way. Don't let success get to your head. And don't let failure get to your heart. You see, if you live and you thrive on your success, as soon as you're not successful, you'll be the most miserable person. Or if you think that you're the super spiritual Christian and all of a sudden you experience failure in your life, all of a sudden you're going to think, you're going to think that God has abandoned me. Listen, your identity is not in your success. Your identity is not in your failure. Your identity is in Christ. And whether God will make you successful or at times there might be seasons in your life when you experience failure. Listen, God is taking you through his school to make you into what he wants you to be. When he says, I want you to live this quiet life. What is opposite of quiet? Opposite of quiet? Loud? Frantic? Noisy? I mean, such people, they're usually nuisance to others rather than help. He says, listen, stay low. Stay humble. Live this quiet life no matter how successful you get. You see, humility and quietness will enable you to show love to people wherever they are, whatever their circumstances are. But not only that, he says not only stay humble, he says, stay focused. Look, he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. Attend to your own business. Now, this seems to be an issue in the church in Thessalonica. When Paul was there, he noticed something. And when he's writing these letters, he's addressing this. For example, we read earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says, we hear that some among you are leading undisciplined life. And what does indisciplined life look like? He says, you are doing no work at all, but you are acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. And disciplined life is demonstrated in two ways. First of all, he says you don't do your own work. And second of all, you are a busybody. Well, these people were very focused, but they were focused on the wrong thing. They focused on everybody else. They meddled in everyone else's business. I mean, another way of saying this is mind your own business. As you go about life, as you go about ministry, as you go about work, mind your own business. That is what Paul is saying to them. Stay focused on the task that has been assigned to you. Do not meddle in the affairs of others. Because when you do that, you've got two problems. Number one, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. If you're wasting your time, if you show up to work and you chat a little bit with this guy, then you go check up on the other guy, then you spend a little bit of time over there. By the time you're done, the day is gone and you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And not only did you not do what you were supposed to do, you've distracted all the other people from doing what they were supposed to do. He says, that's your problem. Your problem is that you're not doing any work and you're distracting others from doing their work. Now, how loving is it to shirk your responsibility? Not to do your own work? How loving is it to just sit here and do nothing and wait for others to do all things for you? That's not loving. He says, if you're going to demonstrate love to brothers, listen, you got to work. you got to do what is assigned to you. So for us, practically speaking, it is 
Assessing our own walk. Hey, what am I assigned to do at work? And I need to focus on that. What am I assigned to do at church? And I need to focus on that. What am I assigned to do at home? And I need to focus on that. Now, what if all of us have this mindset that, listen, I got work to do. I don't have time to waste. So I need to stay humble and I need to stay focused on my responsibilities. Now, does that mean that you never help anyone? Of course it doesn't mean that. But you know the difference between helping somebody and getting into their own business. You know when people are trying to help you or get into your business. You know the difference between that. And Paul says, listen, if in the church you are going to demonstrate love to people, the first thing you can do is you can be faithful with the responsibilities that you have. And again, that is in the context of the church, in the context of a body where each person has responsibility. And he says the most loving thing you can do is to focus on your responsibility towards other people. And in fulfilling your responsibilities, you will minister to others. So stay humble. Stay focused. And number three, stay busy. Stay busy. Because the verse says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your own hands, or work with your hands. Now, if you lived in the first century, this statement was particularly offensive to you. Because work with your own hands, we got slaves for that. We don't do manual labor. We got other people doing things for us. And Paul is writing to this church, probably made up of lower class, many of them are slaves. And he says, hey guys, you need to work with your own hands. Now for whatever reason, and we don't know exactly why, some people in the church in Thessalonica decided that they no longer need to work. Now, a few reasons have been suggested. Perhaps Paul came there and he says, hey guys, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back soon. And then their mind is like, Jesus is coming back soon. Why, why am I supposed to work? I mean, why not just put a white robe and sit around and wait for Jesus? And some of them kind of kicked back and waiting for Jesus. Now, others perhaps decided that, hey, why do I need to work? If I'm in this body and others are working and my needs are supplied, why am I supposed to work? Why do I need to do anything if somebody will do everything for me? And that's why in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians verse 10, Paul says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then what? Is not to eat. You see, it is good to meet needs of the believers in the body. There are people, for whatever reason, they can't work, whether that's physical ailment or whatever other reason. There are legitimate reasons why people can't work. But you cannot be healthy and be able to work and just sit here and wait for others to do everything for you. We're going to take from somebody and give it to you. He says, that's unbiblical. That's sinful. You're robbing other people. That's the word for that. No, he says, you need to be a contributing member of your society. You need to be a contributing member of the church. So in the church, if you only take stuff, if you only sit there and wait for others to do things for you, Paul says, listen, you are not to eat if you don't work. You got to work. You got to stay focused on your job and you got to stay busy. Stay busy doing what is assigned to you. Now, when he says work with your hands, it doesn't mean that all of us need to quit our, work, our job and go look for some kind of manual labor. Now, at the time when this was written, most people were involved in manual labor. No, but in the time that we live today, it doesn't matter whether you are in construction, whether you're in medical field, whether you're in technology, it doesn't matter what you do. He says stay focused on your job and work. Work. Work hard. Now, how valuable would such a person be to a company? 
How valuable would such person be to a church who's truly humble? It's not about him. He's not trying to build a name for himself, or he's just trying to live this humble, quiet life. And this person is focused on the work that is assigned to him, and he goes about it. He's busy doing the work that is assigned to him. How valuable would such person be to a company? How valuable would such person be in the church? Extremely valuable. And if all of us adopt that mindset that I have work that is assigned to me, and I'm going to go about doing this. Listen, if you, if you work like this at work, you will become one of the best employees. Not because you parade yourself around and show yourself as this greatest guy. No, because you are faithful with the task that is assigned to you. But being valuable employee is not the greatest goal, even though you want to be the most valuable employee. You want to be that person. But Paul gives two results. If you live your life like this, if you work in such a manner, two things will happen. Two things that we see in verse 12. Number one, if you live your life in this manner, you will have a credible testimony. That's number one. You will have a credible testimony. In verse 12, he says, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders. Notice, this is not just about you being valuable. This is not just about you making money. This has greater purpose. You live your life in such a way because this gives you an opportunity to share the gospel. Because this gives you an opportunity to be light to the world. You see, the world is watching you. The world is watching you at work. The world is watching you at church. And yes, nobody is going to be saved by looking at how you work. But they can watch how you work. And then when you open your mouth and you share the gospel with them, your life, your testimony, how you live your life, how you conduct yourself will be proof of what you're saying is actually true. Because you can preach all you want. But you've heard people say, yeah, I work with some Christians, and I know. Thanks, but no thanks. You've heard that. Why? Because their testimony, their life ruined their testimony. And then their words have no weight. And Paul is saying, listen, you live in a community where your goal is to spread the gospel. When you want people to be saved, when you want people to believe. And so you have to live in such a way that when you open your mouth, your words are credible. And that's why he says here, you will behave properly towards outsiders. Because if you don't act like this, you can talk all you want. You can have a great talk. But they'll say, listen, if the Jesus you proclaim makes no difference in your life, why do I need him? If you're just like everybody else at work, why do I need your Jesus? But if Jesus makes difference in your life, then when you share the gospel, your testimony will be credible. Not only will your testimony be credible, the second result is you will have no need. He just states that. And not be in any need. Now, this is not a promise of health and wealth. This is not saying that, you know, you will be super rich if you work in this way. But this is just a general principle. If you are such an employee, if you do such work as we have just talked about, he says you will have success. You're not going to have to depend on other people to provide for you. But you yourself will provide for other people. You will be success. You will help people. Now, Paul was not just talking the talk. In the same context, in the passage that we read, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner. We didn't not work and just took stuff from you. No. He says, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, 
we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And he adds, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as model for you so that you would follow our example. He says, work in such a way. And when you work in such a way, then people will see you. People will notice you. Unbelievers who are watching you, they will see that you are different. And then when you have an opportunity to share the gospel with them, you will explain to them the difference, that it is Jesus who is in your life who makes all the difference in the world. As we draw our time to an end, I want you to examine your own heart. Is this how you live your own life? Is this how you work? Would your boss describe you in these terms? Does your life confirm or compromise the testimony that you have before an unbelieving world? You see, for Paul, what was at stake was salvation of sinners, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. And how we live among one another will either be greatest light to the world or Believer, unbelievers will look at that and say, I don't want to be part of that. Because they're just like us. And may the Lord grant us this grace so that we would exhibit this brotherly love toward one another. Even by the way that we work. It was Jesus himself who said that the world will know that the Father has sent me if you do what? If you love one another. And you demonstrate your love by being such person as this. May God grant us grace to do that. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you that each one of us would be such person. That as we go to our works, as we go to our schools, as we go home, that we would have that mindset that we are nothing and we are no one. That we would be focused on the things that you have assigned to us and that we would work hard so that on the final day we will hear from you well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ's name, amen.